Hey folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. Theopolis trains men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs will learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we are beginning to wind up our series on the Book of Signs and the Gospel of John. And here, Peter Lighthart and Alistair Roberts will discuss the last of the seven signs in John chapter 11 with the raising of Lazarus. As always, there's a link in our show notes to sign up for our weekly newsletter in Medias Race. And when you sign up, you'll get a free ebook from Peter Lighthart on Pedo Communion, the Church, and the Gospel. With that, we want to thank you so much for listening. We hope that you are encouraged by this conversation. And here are Peter Lighthart and Alistair Roberts discussing John chapter 11 and the raising of Lazarus. Welcome to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm Peter Lighthart, and I'm here today with Alistair Roberts, uh, joining us from the UK, and Brian Motes, who is making sure that all the equipment is running properly. Unfortunately, Jeff Myers is not able to join us this week. He's been on vacation, and he's traveling today, so uh, Alistair and I will be handling the last episodes of our series in the Gospel of John. For the last couple of months, that's where we've been, and we've been looking at what is traditionally called the Book of Signs in the Gospel of John. These are a series of miracles that Jesus does, often miracles that Jesus performs, and then controversies that grow out of the miracles, the aftermath of the miracles. There are only two of these that are explicitly said to be signs. The first sign, which is the transformation of the water to wine at the wedding of Cana, and the second sign in John chapter 4, which is the healing of the royal official's son, But it's been very traditional for commentators to see not just those two signs, but a series of signs in the first half of John's Gospel, Uh, a series of seven signs typically following, as we've discussed in the past, following uh, to some degree the movement of the days of creation, structured somewhat like the two-panel structure of the days of creation. Uh, And so we've been looking at those passages in John's Gospel through the last couple of months. We're coming toward the end of that, and today we're talking about the, the last of those seven signs, which is the incident that takes place in John chapter 11. This is the story of the raising of Lazarus. And it's um, in the position of the seventh climactic sign and therefore takes a kind of sabbatical position. And as we've discussed in the past, that fits into the the way that these signs seem to be structured in a three plus three plus one sequence with the... uh, this this particular one in the in the seventh position, uh, and it occurred to me looking over the passage that there might be a hint within the passage of a kind of sabbatical theme. I mean, you could make some general conceptual connections. Uh, Jesus is raising from the dead; he's bringing new life. He's calling out Lazarus from the grave as a new man. So there are recreation themes, as there have been in a number of the in a number of the uh, other episodes and maybe uh, particularly sabbatical themes, but uh, there's a, there's a uh, kind of an unusual, maybe not unusual for John, but there's a, a kind of puzzling reference to the passage of days in the course of this uh, text. So when um, Jesus learns that uh, Lazarus is sick, the one whom you love is sick, that's in verse 3. And when he, Jesus hears that, he doesn't go immediately to Bethany to visit Lazarus, Mary, and Martha. Instead, he stays where he is for two days. So, if you count the day when he hears the news as the first day, and then two further days, that's the third. That's three days. And then in verse uh, seventeen, it says, "When Jesus came, he found he had been in the tomb for four days." 
it's not clear when that four-day period began. It, it begins, obviously, with Lazarus's death, but it's not clear exactly in the, in the, in the uh, interaction between Jesus and disciples when that takes place. But it seems like we might have a uh, sequence of seven days that are being presented uh, with Jesus arriving at the tomb of Lazarus in Bethany on the seventh day of this sequence. Uh, that would be an interesting finding because it would match up with what we saw in the first sign. The first sign comes on the third day, the third day after the previous mentioned day. Uh, and if you look at John chapter one, you have a series of days that are mentioned. And then the third day after that is a uh, either a seventh or an eighth day, the third day that's associated with resurrection. But also there's a kind of sabbatical theme in the first sign. And that's marked partly by this sequence of days. And you seem to have something similar in John 11, where you have a, a first day and then a two-day waiting period, and then a fourth day when Jesus shows up, uh, maybe intended to give us a, a, a week period. Uh, and that would associate this climactic sign with the first sign. The the first sign of transforming water to wine is a transformation of the old covenant purifications and the Jewish customs into the new covenant wedding feast uh, that's fulfilled in the resurrection of Jesus, but it's, that's anticipated here in the resurrection of Lazarus. So that would make a neat kind of symmetry around the book of signs if you had two s- Sabbath references in the, in the counting of the days. The story is introduced with an expression of Jesus' love for Lazarus and for Mary and Martha. And as we go through the Gospels, we'll notice that in the other Gospels, the event that precipitates the plot to kill Jesus is primarily the temple action. Whereas within John's Gospel, it focuses upon the raising of Lazarus. It seems that this particular event um, is not just an anticipation of Christ's resurrection, but an event that precipitates the run-up to his death. It's when they actually go to um, Bethany, the Thomas says that let us go with him, that we may die with him. And then introduced at the beginning, we also have Mary who anointed Jesus um, for his death. Now that event doesn't occur towards until the next chapter. So there seems to be an anticipation of events that are to come. And this particular event ends the book of signs, but it also sets the ball rolling for everything that follows. Yes, uh, that's uh, uh, Thomas Woody in his commentary on John uh, makes that point that the the story begins with a double dilemma or double problem. It's not just the sickness and eventual death of Lazarus uh, that that's overcome when Jesus calls Lazarus out of the tomb, but you also have this overlapping or intertwining issue of Jesus' danger, uh, as you said. Uh, there's a worry uh, about Jesus going back to Jerusalem where they just have threatened to stone him. That was mentioned in the uh, at the end of chapter 10, uh, verse 39. They were seeking to seize him and he eluded their grasp. So there's a danger to Jesus as well as the death of Lazarus. Those two things are two complications at the beginning of the story that are, the first is resolved because Lazarus is raised. The other is intensified, as you said, because the Jews decide they have to get rid of Jesus now because He's raised Lazarus, and many are following him. The reference we both we both referred to verse three, which talks about the one whom Jesus loves being sick, and this is one of the theological puzzles or practical puzzles of the passage that Jesus knows that his friend, the one he loves, is sick, but he doesn't go immediately. And there's a hint of rebuke when both Martha and then Mary meet him and say, "If you were here, my brother wouldn't have died. If you had come earlier, you could have saved him from this." 
within the story itself, we have that question raised, why doesn't Jesus go? Uh, why doesn't he immediately go from where he is to Bethany and arrest the disease? We know he can do it. He's been, he's been doing that kind of thing throughout the book of John in the whole, in the whole series of signs that we've been looking at. Um, Jesus has been healing diseases. Why doesn't he arrest the disease before it leads to death rather than waiting for it to die? I think this fits with the things we've looked at in other passages where Jesus is, um, uh, Jesus is uh, absent at the moment that these uh, signs take place. Uh, he's not, he doesn't make a display of himself when he turns the water to wine. He's absent when the blind man, in the, the last episode we talked about, John chapter 9, the blind man who's blind from birth who gets healed. Jesus is absent when the when the blind man actually is healed, and he stays absent where the blind man is being attacked by the, the Pharisees and the Jewish leaders. Uh, and then Jesus arrives seemingly kind of late in the game after the guy's already been expelled from the synagogue. So it seems that Jesus is delaying uh, and appearing late. I, I think we could say the same thing in earlier. Something like this goes on in uh, chapter 6 where the disciples are struggling in the boat during a storm. Uh, and Jesus comes after they've been struggling for a while. He doesn't come and stop the storm immediately or keep the storm from happening. He arrives when the storm is in full, you know, when the storm, storm is uh, endangering the disciples, and then Jesus arrives. You have, that, you have that delayed pattern. The absence of Jesus is an important part of all of these signs. Uh, and I think it's anticipating what's going to happen with the disciples after Jesus departs. Uh, that's a major theme of the next several chapters after chapter 11, the upper room discourse. Jesus talks a lot about his departure and what the disciples are going to both accomplish and what they're going to suffer after he leaves. And if they're looking for encouragement and instruction about uh, Jesus, how, how, to, how, to, how to be disciples, uh, how to be witnesses, how to keep faith in the absence of Jesus when Jesus seems to be delayed or indifferent, uh, then they can look look at these stories. John's gospel is all about the absence of Jesus and his uh, apparently late arrival, which is in fact arrival ju- an arrival just at the right time. Reading the account, um, it's interesting to note that both in this chapter and in the chapter that follows, Mary and Martha are characterized not just as a pair of sisters in undistinguished from each other, but... Um, Mary has the sort of character that we see described of her in um, Luke's gospel and Martha as well. Martha in chapter 12, she's associated with serving. And then Mary is the one in both cases who's associated with Jesus' feet. First of all, that she um, comes to Jesus, sees him, falls at his feet. And then in the next chapter that she anoints his feet. And in Luke's gospel, she's the one who sits at his feet. And I suspect John was um, assuming that the readers of his gospel were familiar with Luke's account and could maybe draw some connections between these things. Right. Yeah. Martha is the one that's uh, busy with the with the uh, hospitality. And I think that the, the point of the Lucan passage is a point about hospitality. Uh, Martha is busy making sure that everything is taken care of. But in the end, that busyness leads her to ignore Jesus. Mary is actually the more hospitable one because she receives Jesus by spending time listening to and talking to him. So he, she pays attention to the guest rather than to all the preparations for the guest. And uh, Jesus, I think, is commending her hospitality. Here, um, Brody at least suggests that there's a Mary is 
has a more ambiguous role, at least, because she ends up uh, coming to Jesus along with the Jews. Uh, verse 33 tells us that she comes late, uh, later than Martha, uh, and she's along with the Jews. And when, she, when Jesus sees the Jews and Mary uh, mourning over Lazarus's death, that's when he is moved and troubled and, uh, and uh, acts. And the, the association with the Jews who uh, are not, uh, these are, uh, they're not uh, portrayed favorably in John's gospel in general. So Mary's association with them kind of leaves them in a, Brody suggests they're even, she's among the unbelievers as it were at least at the beginning of the story. And then part of what uh, Jesus is reacting to is uh, he's reacting emotionally to the, uh, the fact of death and the destructiveness of death. Brody suggests he's also reacting to the Jews who are expressing their disbelief. He's told Martha that he's the resurrection. His presence is the presence of life. And yet the Jews in, in the presence of incarnate life are, mourning and sad uh, about uh, the triumph of death. So uh, the, um, I'm not sure if that all works, but it, Mary does seem to have a, an association with the, this, group, this group of Jews, Jewish mourners that uh, puts her in a somewhat different position. At the least, there seems to be a comparison or contrast to be drawn between two accounts that place the sisters alongside each other, because we have the encounter with Martha first and then followed by the encounter with Mary. And both of them say exactly the same words to Christ that, um, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Yes, right. You know, so the, right, they're being, they're, uh, we're being invited to compare and contrast them by the way that they, uh, they react to Jesus when he first comes. I think that the, the emotional reaction of Jesus is, uh, is a significant part of the story here too. Of course, we have the famous statement that Jesus wept. Uh, but um, uh, B.B. Warfield, in a famous essay on the emotional life of Jesus, points to this passage as one of the uh, one of several in the Gospels that reveal the the deep human emotions that Jesus experiences. And he points out that uh, many commentators have said this that what Jesus reacts not just with sadness, um, but especially in verse thirty three, he's troubled within himself. He's shaken, and there's even a hint of anger. The the verb. Uh, suggests kind of snorting. I'm I'm put in mind of the uh, Old Testament imagery of the the Lord's nose burning hot against Israel in his anger, and Jesus is indignant in a sense at the scene. Perhaps partly indignant at the uh, unbelief of the Jews, but I think also indignant at the the fact of death, and the indignant at the ra- the the damage that death does in God's good world. Uh, Jesus has come to overcome death. And he recognizes that death is an enemy, and so he reacts with this indignation that death would try to claim something and someone he loves, and he's he's uh, insistent on reclaiming the one that he loves from the clutches of death. Uh, but that emotional dimension is an, is an important part of what uh, what we're seeing in the story. Once again, it's the word it's the word of Christ that proves to be the means of the miracle. Um, in this case, a word that's obeyed by a dead man um, who rises at the command. Yeah, so that's, uh, uh, as we've seen before, the, uh, going back to the prologue of John, Jesus is introduced as the word. His word is a word of power. He gives instructions and people are able to do things that they weren't able to do 
uh, able to do before. It's a literal outworking of what we see in John chapter 5, um, verse 25. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. Right. The enemies, as it were, that Jesus is confronting have become increasingly, put it this way, a death is encroaching more and more directly on on the work of Jesus. So he starts out with healing a, uh, the son of a royal official. Uh, he goes to giving, um, uh, restoring a man who's been paralyzed for 38 years. He heals a man who's born blind. So he's there's a, uh, there's a kind of intensification of the affliction that Jesus is overcoming. Uh, and then this is the climax of that, uh, in the Book of Signs at least, the climax of it where uh, Lazarus is not just has spent, it's not just that he spent his life suffering from some kind of affliction. Uh, he is now, he's dead. <laughs> and so death has intruded into Jesus' work and Jesus is able to overcome even that even that danger. That's connected with the emotional dimension I, I pointed out. Again, I'm, I'm citing Brody again, who has some interesting comments about how the he sees a kind of descent uh, into human suffering that occurs several times in the course of the story. So Jesus is initially uh, absent from Bethany. He's not with uh, Lazarus when he dies. And then he goes into the place where Lazarus has died. Then he comes and he declares himself to be the resurrection and the life. He has lordship over death, and he can overcome death. But then he, there's a kind of descent into this emotional reaction and uh, his, uh, his anger and his sorrow over the, over the death of uh, Lazarus. So again, you have a kind of movement into identification with, the, with, the, uh, with uh, Lazarus and with, with death. And then Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. But that, that very event, as you pointed out at the beginning, Alistair, becomes the occasion for the Pharisees, the Jewish leaders, the Sanhedrin, to start plotting against Jesus. So uh, the, his, his moment of triumph over death in raising Lazarus very quickly is turned into an occasion or a, a rationale for putting him to death. So you have this, you have this movement going on th- uh, throughout as Jesus puts himself in a position of confronting death, not only Lazarus's death as he does here, but is by raising Lazarus, he's putting himself in a position to confront death on the cross. There's a, an aside at the beginning of the uh, chapter that um, it's kind of one of these uh, Johannine digressions that uh, doesn't quite seem to fit into the passage. Jesus says, verse 7, let us go to Judea again. He's out where John was first baptizing. That's what we're told at the end of chapter 10, verse 40. He's beyond the Jordan to the place where John is first baptizing. So he's coming from the Transjordan over back toward Jerusalem. Uh, Bethany's in the vicinity of Jerusalem. So he says, let us go. And the disciples are going with him. And along the way, there's this discussion about light and darkness, walking in the light, uh, walking in the darkness. Uh, The one who walks in the light does not stumble because he can see where he's going. Uh, The one who walks in darkness does stumble because he doesn't have light, and as Jesus says in verse 10, because the light is not in him. So you have this, this kind of digression that reaches back to earlier sections of John's gospel where Jesus has identified himself as the light. It's intriguing that it arises here. Uh, Jesus is going to call Lazarus out of the cave, out of the darkness of the cave, back into the light of life. So in some sense, that conversation is anticipating that. Uh, it's uh, foreshadowing the, the later miracle. Uh, but this also seems to be a comment both on Jesus 
Jesus' own ministry and the confusions of the disciples. This at least is one one way of interpreting that that little exchange. Uh, the one who walks in the light is Jesus. He's walking in his father's doing his father's will. He's walking in the day, but he's going to depart, and he's already warned his disciples that the day is uh, the day is fading. Night is coming, and he's going to warn them even more in the following chapters in the Upper Room Discourse. So night is coming, and the question is whether the disciples are going to be prepared to walk without stumbling once the light is removed from them, once Jesus is gone. And the way that they can walk without stumbling and be mediators of the light and life that's in Jesus is if they have light in themselves. I think that's what verse 10 is getting at, uh, one of these mystical comments of Jesus. You think if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because he doesn't have a flashlight or a torch. But Jesus' statement uh, implies that the the source of light is coming from within. And so the, you can walk in, in the night without stumbling if you have light in your if you have light in yourself. If you have light in yourself, then you're walking in the light rather than in the night, rather than in the darkness. But that that light in them depends on Jesus being with them. Jesus being in them depends, as we find out in subsequent chapters, on the gift of the Spirit. We might also see a, a way in which it feeds into Jesus' subsequent statement about Lazarus that he's fallen asleep. Um, the state of sleep is the state that corresponds with the darkness. And that state of death being described as one of sleep is one that presents Christ um, and the resurrection as connected as the light that shines is to our waking up and arising into a new day. As Paul talks about it in Ephesians 4, 5, awake, O sleeper, and rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Yeah, and, and the disciples are going to have to uh, experience that awakening, or they're, they're going to be stumbling in the darkness without light in them. I think that uh, we have a, an essay on the Theopolis website. Brian will link it to the program notes for this episode, but uh, Bubu Yarmolak, a, a pastor in Poland, uh, wrote on this passage a couple of years ago and uh, talked about the strange love of Jesus. I think that was the title of the, of the essay, but he's making the point that I uh, suggested at the beginning, the important pastoral point about Jesus' apparent absence from the crisis moments of, of our lives. And they're crisis moments in part because it seems that God is absent from us, that uh, we're in the midst of a, we've suffered a loss or we're in the midst of a trial, we're being attacked uh, as, the, as the blind man was by others. And yet Jesus doesn't seem to be around to help. Uh, we're, in the, we're caught in stormy waters and Jesus is somewhere behind on the other shore while we're struggling against the storm. Bubas makes the point that this, uh, this passage, like all the others in John, that bring the changes on this theme is an assurance of Jesus' rescue, his power to heal, his power to save from death, his power to calm the storm. And the, the stories are kind of parables that are intended to call us to faith, to trust in the midst of the darkness, uh, to trust that Jesus is, will calm the storm in the midst of the storm, even when he seems to be uh, leaving us to drown. Uh, we trust Jesus in the face of death, even when he seems to be letting death take us. But Jesus does arrive, and Jesus does heal, and Jesus does save. 
But that that absence is part of the strengthening of our faith. It's part of the way Jesus works, the part of the way God works with his people. That's a, an important pastoral lesson from this passage. Holding together Christ and the light and the way that Christ brings about um, the waking up of Lazarus, I think helps us to understand perhaps the greatest I am statement within the Gospel of John, which is found here. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, he shall li- yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. That Christ is the one who is not just raised from the dead. He is the resurrection. He's the one who um, is the source of the life of resurrection, not just the one who bears a life that's found finds another source. Which makes the, the conclusion of the story all that more tragic and ironic. Jesus is life. Jesus is resurrection. Mm-hmm. And when, when he demonstrates that by raising Lazarus, the Jews' first reaction is to kill him, <laughs> to make sure that resurrection life doesn't remain uh, within Israel. They're, they're uh, signing their own death sentence. This is a suicidal act. Uh, it's interesting in, uh, that they're doing this. Uh, verse 40, uh, 48 and 49 give us the reason. They're worried about um, turmoil in Israel that will lead the Romans to come and deprive them of their place and of their nation. I think place there refers to the temple. So they're they're concerned about if Jesus gets a following, that's going to cause tumult. The Romans are going to suppress that. Uh, or perhaps they believe that uh, if the if Jesus gets a following then they'll have to they'll have to suppress uh, Jesus and his followers. But in any case the Romans are going to come in and uh, they're going to they're going to lose their place in their nation. Of course in the in the trial scene of Jesus they basically cede their position to to Rome when Jesus is presented as their king. They say, "We have no king but Caesar." Uh, they're uh, giving themselves over to the Romans. So that you have this. You have no. You have no um, all of it discourse in the Gospel of John. Jesus doesn't talk about the coming destruction of the temple. I think that uh, that event and that threat actually looms pretty large in John's Gospel, uh, but it's in the background and comes to the foreground really only here. Uh, and it, it's expressed as a fear of the Jews. It's not expressed as a prediction of Jesus. But again, by putting Jesus to death and by trying to kill the, prin- the Prince of Life, they're in fact bringing what they fear on themselves. Uh, they're, they're, they're making their fear be fulfilled by attacking Jesus. And they don't just seek to attack Jesus. In the next chapter, we see they're also trying to um, kill Lazarus because his very life is evidence of Jesus being the source of life. Yes, right. Which again, thinking thinking in terms of how this is read in the and by its first readers, the the apostles and their the apostolic church, they're in that position of association with Jesus. They're going to suffer the same kind of attacks. They've been raised to new life by Jesus, not literally as Lazarus was, but uh, by the Spirit. And so they're going to suffer the same kinds of the same kinds of opposition, and for the same reason, whatever happened to Jesus will happen to them. If they hated Jesus, they'll hate him, just as when they hate Jesus, they also hate Lazarus. When we read the next chapter alongside um, chapter eleven, it seems that we're supposed to connect them. There's a number of threads that explicitly bring the two together. At the very beginning of chapter eleven, in verse two, we have something that 
is a proleptic statement about the fact that Mary is the one who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair. Now, she hasn't yet done that. She does that in the next chapter. And in the next chapter, at the very beginning, we're told Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. And then um, Mary and Martha present there again. And then Mary anoints his feet with the expensive ointment, the nard, and he declares that it's for the day of his burial. How should we read these two stories alongside each other? Because Jesus' fate and Lazarus's fate, the fate of Christ and the fate of the one that he loves, are very closely bound together here. Yeah, the first thing I, uh, that occurs to me is that this is this is just a um, further development of what we'd already been talking about, which is the the double problem at the beginning of chapter eleven is the threat to Jesus' life and the death of Lazarus. Lazarus is raised from the dead, so there's a resolution to that. But then the threat to Jesus intensifies, and John twelve is bringing that uh, further to the foreground by the anointing of Jesus. Jesus begins talking explicitly about his death and his being lifted up later on in John chapter 12. Uh, the upper room discourse, as we've talked about, is um, all about Jesus' departure. So I think the, yeah, uh, that's, uh, that would be the link that I would see, that this, this does seem to complete a section of the gospel, chapter 11 does, with this threat of Jesus. And then we move into the implementation of the plot to kill Jesus. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.